Good morning, everyone. I have the privilege of serving here as one of the pastors at Fellowship National. I'm glad you've chosen to worship with us today. And as Jill said, today's an exciting day for us. We get to celebrate several baptisms as three young men in our body declare their devotion and allegiance to Jesus. And we also get to share a meal together on the lawn right out here afterwards. Um, but it's also exciting because we get to launch a new sermon series through the New Testament book of First Peter to which we've given the subtitle, Faithful Living in a Foreign World. And because we have so much going on this morning, we're, I'm going to keep my message on the shorter side. Don't you dare say amen, Lee. Um, and and um, just, we're just going to dip our big toe into the narrative, or it's not a narrative, into the letter of First Peter. We're not going to do the whole dunking. We'll do the dunkings outside. But we're just going to dip our, our, our big toe into the, the first couple verses of this New Testament epistle. An epistle is just another name for a letter. And First Peter is one of two letters that a disciple named Simon wrote that we have record of that have, has been preserved in the canon of Scripture for us. And um, Simon was one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus. He was introduced to Jesus by his brother, Andrew. And Jesus gave Simon a nickname. He called him Peter, which in Greek means rock. Okay? So he got the, name, the nickname rock, and that nickname stuck with him throughout his life. And Simon the rock, Peter, is probably my favorite disciple. I'm not sure why, except for the fact that he's so easy to relate with. Um, and we learn a lot about him in the gospel narratives. Um, there's other disciples that we barely hear from, like Thaddeus. You know, what do you know about Thaddeus? Also called James the Lesser or James the Less. Um, he was nicknamed Thaddeus by Jesus, um, most likely, or maybe by the disciples. It means mama's boy, basically. Um, and... Um, because there was another James, James, the brother of John. This is James, son of Alphaeus. Um, so maybe even Matthew's brother, because Matthew's son of Alphaeus as well. But anyway, I'm getting off track. But um, it, it was fun. I, I can imagine that group of disciples all having nicknames and things like that. And, uh, but we never hear from guys like Thaddeus except for one question in John chapter 14 that he asked. But Peter, on the other hand, we hear from him a lot through the narrative of the Gospels. Um, Almost every other page, Peter's opening his mouth and saying something. And, there, and there's times where, when Peter opens his mouth and, and says something really profound and deep. And, and we look at these insights and we go, oh, wow, Peter, that's really good stuff. That's solid. I see why Jesus nicknamed you the rock, you know. But then there's other times where Peter opens his mouth. And, and it's, we're like, oh, Wow. Peter, did you just say that out loud? That's really dumb. I can see why Jesus named you a rock, <laughs> you know? And so, for, for instance, there's, there's one, one, one um, section in Scripture in the Gospels where Jesus asks, who do the people say that I am? And, and the disciples are giving various answers. And then Jesus turns around and says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter's the first one to answer. He gets it right. He says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And we're like, yes, that's profound. That's deep. That's solid. He got it right. Oh, wow, Peter. Amazing insight. And then in the next paragraph, we read where Jesus is talking about what kind of Messiah he's going to be, how he's going to suffer and die. Peter takes Jesus off to the side and begins to rebuke him. 
And we're like, oh, wow, Peter, that's really dumb. <laughs> I mean, you're going to correct God in the flesh? Ah, Peter. Well, anyway, Dave Bachman is going to be speaking next week, and he's going to give us a little bit more background on the author. He's going to be talking about the disciple named Peter. Um, and, and I don't want to steal his thunder, so I won't spend too much more time on Peter. But um, after, his, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, Peter did become the rock that Jesus, upon which Jesus built his church. He became an influential leader in the early church, starting out in Jerusalem. And then evidently later on in his life, he, he, he did some missionary travels. He, he went to Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and helped to either plant or strengthen churches there. And this New Testament book of 1 Peter is a letter or an epistle that Peter wrote while he was in Rome, writing, writing this letter and addressing it back to those people that he knew in Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey, that he had been influential in um, their spiritual development. This is a, a group of largely Gentile believers scattered throughout various provinces in Asia Minor. And, um, and he, he's writing back to them, encouraging them, uplifting them, and, and warning them about some, some things that are coming. Now, now, whenever I travel somewhere new or unfamiliar to me, I always like to look at a map first to get my bearings. I'm a map guy, I'll admit it. Um, they help me orient myself before driving or walking into the unknown. For instance, I love to backpack. And before I take a backpack trip, I will either look up a map online or I'll visit the local REI store and buy a trail map and scout it out, looking at, at places where the, the trail forks, looking at places that might be good for camping, where the water sources are, where the, how much elevation gain or drop there is. All of that, I just scope it out ahead of time to get my bearings. Maps are useful tools for orientation. Amen. Thank you, Lee. <laughs> I've also found it helpful when, when studying a book of a Bible to, to get a road map, to, to study an outline or something that gives us a bigger picture of what's going on. One of the best resources that I've found to orient myself to various sections of Scripture is a series of videos put out by um, an organization called The Bible Project. How many of you are familiar with, with those videos? Okay, several of you. Um, and as we dive into this book of 1 Peter as a congregation, before we start examining the trees, I thought it'd be helpful for us to zoom out and look at the forest first by watching an introductory video put on by the Bible Project. So let's watch this together. The first letter of Peter. His name was Shimon, or Simon, when he first became a follower of Jesus, and he was part of the inner circle of the 12 disciples. When he made his confession that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus changed his name to Kephas, which is Aramaic for rock, which was later translated into Greek as Petros, or Peter. Jesus promised that he would become a leader among the apostles to guide the Messianic community in Jerusalem through its earliest years, and that's what happened. Remember the early chapters of the book of Acts. 
Eventually, Peter was called to carry the good news of Jesus beyond the borders of Israel, however, and this letter was written decades into that mission in the wider Roman world. We discover at the conclusion of this letter that Peter is in Rome, which he calls Babylon, and we learn that while Peter commissioned the letter, it was actually composed by a man named Silvanus, who was a co-worker of Peter. This was a circular letter sent to multiple church communities in the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is in modern-day Turkey. And Peter learned that these mostly non-Jewish Christians were persecuted. They were facing hostility and harassment from their Greek and Roman neighbors. And so Peter wrote to encourage them in the midst of their suffering. And this helps explain the letter's design and its main themes. It opens with a greeting, and then it moves into a poetic song of praise to God, which introduces the key themes that are explored in the main body of the letter, where he first affirms the new family identity of these persecuted Christians, which will help them see their suffering as a way to bear witness to Jesus. And this has a way of focusing their future hopes on the return of Jesus. Let's dive in. You'll just see how all the pieces work together. So Peter opens by greeting these churches as the chosen people of God who are exiled around the world. Now, Peter makes clear throughout the letter that these Christians he's writing to are Gentiles, but here he describes them with phrases from the Old Testament that describe how God chose the people of Israel, the family of Abraham, who was himself an exile and wanderer. This is a key strategy that Peter repeats through the whole letter. He wants these suffering non-Jewish Christians to see that through Jesus, they now belong to the family of Abraham. And so they're wandering exiles just like him, misunderstood, they're mistreated, and they're looking for their true home in the promised land. Peter continues this idea in the opening song. He praises God for causing people to be born again into a living hope through Jesus' resurrection and the power of the Spirit. God's inviting all people into a new family centered around Jesus, a family that has a new identity as God's beloved children and who have a new hope of a world reborn by God's love when Jesus returns as King. And for people who have this hope, suffering and persecution is actually a strange gift because it burns away false hopes and distractions like a purifying fire, and it reminds us of our true home and hope. And so so paradoxically, life's hardships actually deepen our faith. They make it more genuine. From here, Peter's going to move on into the body of the letter, but he's going to explore all these ideas in greater depth. So he first develops the theme about the new family identity of God's people. He takes even more memorable Old Testament images about the family of Israel, and then he applies them to these Gentile Christians. So like the Israelites who left Egypt, they too are to gird up their loins and leave behind their former way of life on the way to a new future. So they are the holy people of God now who are journeying through the wilderness. They are the people of the new Exodus who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, who's the ultimate Passover lamb. They are the people of the new covenant who have God's word buried deep inside them, restoring their hearts and renewing their minds. They are the new temple built on the foundation of Jesus himself, and they're the new kingdom of priests who are serving God as his representatives to the nations. Now, by applying all of these amazing images to these persecuted Gentile Christians, Peter is placing their suffering within a brand new story. And this leads into the next section. Their persecution can actually help bring clarity to their mission in the world, to bear witness to God's mercy among the nations. So Peter first encourages them to submit to Roman rule, even if it's oppressive. Yes, he acknowledges their persecution, their suffering is unjust, but violent resistance solves nothing, not to mention that it betrays the teachings of Jesus who loved his enemies instead of killing them. 
Peter then specifically highlights the very difficult situation that Christian slaves and wives faced when they lived in Roman households where the patriarch did not follow Jesus. The problem was that it was expected that everyone in the household would submit to and worship the patriarch's gods. And so Peter's aware that giving allegiance to Jesus will generate suspicion. So Peter says it's true. All Christians, including Roman wives and slaves, have been fully liberated by Jesus. But they are to demonstrate that freedom, not through rebellion, but by resisting evil the same way Jesus did, through showing love and generosity to your enemies. And in homes where the husband is also a Christian, it's a different story. They are to treat their wives totally different from their Roman neighbors, regarding them as equals before God who are worthy of honor and respect. And Peter's hopeful that this imitation of Jesus' love and upside-down kingdom will give power to their words as they bear witness to God's mercy and show people the beautiful truth about the way of Jesus. But Peter's also a realist. He knows that Christians will continue to be persecuted, and so he reminds them of their future vindication. He recalls how Jesus himself was unfairly persecuted and murdered by corrupt human powers, but in reality, he was dying for the sins of his enemies. And afterward, he was vindicated and given resurrection life by the Spirit. And now Jesus is exalted as king over all human and spiritual powers. Then Peter shows how baptism points to the vindication of Jesus' followers. So like Noah, they've been saved through the waters, not as a magic ritual, but as a sacred symbol that shows their change of heart, their desire to be joined to Jesus in his death and his resurrection. And so now, even if they are murdered for following Jesus, their hope is in future vindication and exaltation alongside their king. Which leads Peter into the final movement. He recalls Jesus' words that his disciples should consider it an honor and joy to be persecuted just like he was. Peter then calls on church leaders to care for these suffering Christians and to show the same kind of servant leadership that Jesus did to his followers. And finally, Peter reminds these Christians about the real enemy that they are facing. This hostility isn't simply cultural or even political. There are dark forces of spiritual evil at work inspiring hatred and violence. And they are to resist this evil by staying faithful to Jesus and his teachings and by anticipating his return and ultimate victory over such evil. Peter concludes with a prayer for divine strength, and he sends a greeting from the church in Rome, which he calls Babylon. Now, this is cool. Peter's adopting here the tradition of the Old Testament prophets for whom the name Babylon became an archetype for any and every corrupt nation. And so Rome has become the new Babylon, and its empire is where God's people are now exiled from their true home in the renewed creation. Peter's first letter is a powerful reminder of Christian hope in the midst of suffering. God's people have been a misunderstood minority from the very beginning, and they should expect to face hostility because they've chosen to live under the rule of a different king, Jesus. However, persecution can become a strange gift to the church because it offers a chance to show others the surprising generosity and love of Jesus, which is fueled by the hope of his return. And that's what 1 Peter is all about. All right, you got that? Pop quiz. No, um, that's like drinking from a fire hose for seven minutes. I know that, but don't worry. We're going to take our time as we go through the pages of this New Testament book. We'll have a couple months in this book as we unpack its message and its meaning. And I'm looking forward to that together. But for now, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open it up to the book of First Peter. You'll find it near the end of your New Testament, um, right after Hebrew and James, but before First, Second, Third John, Jude, and Revelation. 
And we'll also be putting the words on the screen behind me, so don't worry if you didn't bring a Bible. I will cover, and we're just going to cover Peter's greeting today in the first two verses of this epistle. Chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. So, so Peter starts out by identifying himself. This is very common in a In a first century letter, the author starts out with his name. Instead of the dear so-and-so, he starts out with who's writing it. And he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Not only was Peter one of the original disciples of Jesus, he was also an apostle. Does anyone know what an apostle means? It's simply a word that means sent one or one sent on a mission. Uh, well, what exact mission was Peter sent on by Jesus? Well, we, we, um, we have to uh, back up and look at the last words of Jesus to find out. We can read about them in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, right before Jesus ascended, he, he gave marching orders to his disciples. He handed them the car keys, so to speak, and said, I'm gone and you're on and here's your mission, Okay. Um, very familiar verses, if, if you've um, read through the Gospels. Um, we oftentimes call these verses the Great Commission. As Jesus calls his disciples to adopt a commission with him to make other disciples, sending them out as apostles. Let's go ahead and read these verses together, some of the last words of Jesus. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Remember, they lost Judas. The 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. This is after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Verse 17. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Peter was there. He was one of the 11. He, he heard Jesus speak that commission in person. And, and he didn't adopt it as the great suggestion. He adopted it as the great commission. He embraced his identity as an apostle. Peter, an apostle, a sent one of Christ Jesus. And then Peter goes on to tell us whom he's addressed, to whom he's addressing his epistle, his letter, in the middle of verse 1. To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Those are all sections of Asia Minor. And Peter is encouraging his audience, his original audience, to view themselves as what? God's chosen people. He calls them elect. God's chosen people. God's elect. But, but then he adds a second aspect to their identity and calls them what? What else are they called? Starts with an E as well. Exiles. He calls them exiles. Now, why would Peter be encouraging his audience to view themselves as exiles? Foreigners in a land that really isn't their home. Why would he be encouraging these largely Gentile believers in Asia Minor who actually most likely grew up there, made their home there, 
This was their native land, and he's calling them exiles. Why? They're in their homeland. They're not exiled, physically speaking. So, so what's behind this moniker? What's behind this, this name that Peter gives them? He calls them God's chosen people, God's elect, exiles scattered. Why? Well, because as God's chosen people, they have a new allegiance. They have a new identification as Jesus followers, and that identification, that allegiance, puts them at odds with the culture around them. See, their first century culture was under Roman rule, and, and under emperor worship was the, the dominant, um, I guess, religion of that day. People worshipped the Caesar, worshipped the emperor, which happened to be Nero at that time when Peter was, was writing these, these words. But followers of Jesus have a, have a different king with different priorities. And they're going to stick out if they faithfully serve this other king instead of the Roman emperor. And so, as they do that, they're going to be marginalized. They're, they're going to be misunderstood. They're going to be misrepresented. They're going to be mistreated. In fact, persecution, as Peter penned these words, was breaking out all over the Roman Empire against Christians under the brutal hand of Nero. Well, in recent decades, here in America, we've undergone some interesting societal shifts. You know, last week I told you that First Peter was, was going to be very applicable to our cultural moment. And the, the reason I said that is because this book was written to people who are in the minority, on the fringes of society, looked at with suspicion by the dominant culture of emperor worship around them. Well, the, the shifts in our own culture over the past few decades have been identified by sociologists as a shift from a Christian nation to a post-Christian society. In other words, the Christian worldview is no longer in a place of dominance in the public square. Uh, Christianity in America has largely been replaced by modern Western secularism as the dominant religion. It doesn't call itself a religion, but it is. It has its own creed. Because of this, those of us who are committed to following Jesus with our lives, attempting to align our lives with God's word, are experiencing some disorienting shifts. Now, some of you are young enough, you're like, no, oh, it's always been this way. But those of us who are a few decades older have seen this happen in our culture. Um, Pastor John Tyson, um, he pastors in New York, has outlined these three shifts very eloquently. He's put it this way. First of all, we've moved from the majority to the minority. We've moved from the majority to the minority. As Christians, we can no longer assume that most people around us believe in God, have any concept of sin or, or biblical ethics, or know who Jesus is and what he did for us. Those are oftentimes foreign concepts now in our culture. Secondly, we've moved from the center to the fringe. Christians are no longer at the hub of cultural power. The days when politicians were people of deep faith, the greatest institutions of higher learning had Christian commitments, and influential thinkers were mainly people of Christian heritage, are now largely in the rearview mirror. Thirdly, we've moved from being respected to being now disrespected. The term Christian used to have a positive connotation in our society. People um, might have thought we were odd or weird, but at least they considered us as good. You know, it's good for you that you live like that. 
we held a moral high ground that may not have been shared, but, but it was at least respected. Now the term Christian often has a negative connotation in our culture. We're not only considered odd, we hold the, the moral low ground. We're, we're considered regressive, intolerant, narrow-minded, haters, wrong, and quite possibly dangerous. There's no longer a social benefit from following Jesus, only a growing social cost. Well, if you've lived long enough to, to feel these shifts, feel the winds changing in our culture, congratulations. The Bible is about to become a lot more meaningful and relevant to you because it wasn't written to people in the majority at the center of power and um, respected in society. No, it was written to people primarily who were in the minority, who were marginalized, and who were disrespected in society. Misunderstood, viewed as dangerous. The Bible is primarily written to exiles, just like Peter was writing to his original audience and called them what? Exiles. So in his greeting, Peter not only reminds his audience that they are foreigners in this world, he also encourages them by reminding them and us, by extension, of our identity. He reminds them of who they are and whose they are. And he does this beginning in verse 2. To God's elect exiles who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. You know, it's easy to read these verses and miss one of the most significant things about it. Um, let me highlight three things for you here. Do you see it now? Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son. What was the great commission given to Peter again? Make disciples, and then baptizing them. How? In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and name of the Holy Spirit. This is identification language. You often talk about baptism as as identifying ourselves with the triune God. Well, Peter is reminding his readers and us of our identity. Peter wants his original audience to know that God, as God's people, we have a new identity, a new relationship with the triune God. We are sovereignly chosen sons and daughters of who? God the Father. We are being changed from the inside out through the sanctifying work of the Spirit set apart by the Spirit, sent out as disciple-making missionaries by the Spirit. And we are servants of who? Jesus, God the Son. Obeying him and taking on his posture of servanthood amidst a hostile world around us. Now, we won't do this perfectly as Christians, and this is why that last phrase is mentioned there in this verse. Sprinkled with his blood. Peter recalls Old Testament imagery of atonement here, covering over of sin. As Christ followers, we will still mess up as we try to embody the posture of Jesus in our broken world. We will still sin, but our sins are continually forgiven. They've been atoned for by the sprinkled blood, by the finished work of Jesus on the cross as the perfect sacrifice. So what's our identity? 
Say this out loud with me. We are adopted children of the Father. We are five missionaries empowered by the Spirit. We are forgiven servants of the Son. So together we are, say this out loud as well, we are a family of missionary servants. This is who we are. This is our identity. This is our new allegiance. This is who we are in relationship with the triune God. As the worship team makes their way back to the stage, I told you my message was going to be short. I promised it. Okay. As the worship team makes their way back to the stage, I, I, I do wish I had time to unpack this, and we'll talk more about it in future weeks. But instead of talking more about it today, we're going to experience a visible demonstration of this identification with a triune God by watching three young men get baptized. Three young men pledging their allegiance to the triune God. I'll give instructions for how we're we're going to transition to baptisms outside here in a little bit. But for now, join me in prayer. Father, thank you that you have called us out of darkness into wonderful light, that we may declare your praises to a world around us that is no longer listening to us, but they're still watching. Father, I pray that they would see the embodiment of Jesus as we go and relate to neighbors and coworkers, friends, family. Father, I pray that in our identity, they would see a picture of you. And that's our prayer. Father, I pray that we would not declare what we believe with just our tongues, with just our mouths on Sunday as we sing worship songs. But we would declare our identity by the way that we live each and every day. And we need your help with this. We need the Spirit's enablement. And so we invite that. We ask for that. We need that, Lord. Amen.